Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. We created lots of different like kind of high touch and low touch ways for people to have meaningful engagement and involvement in the curation of the content. And that was something that really hadn't been done well before. And we felt like it was a way to not only build community, but also create a scalable model and send the message that this is a community-driven company that cares a lot about high-quality content, and we can build this together. Amanda Hesser believes that food is at the center of a well-lived life, and it is this belief that led her to co-found Food52 in 2009. Food52 is a community-centered blog and e-commerce store that reaches more than 24 million people a month. But no platform builds itself. And in the case of Food52, this massive community of users was brought together through a set of unique engagement tactics that Amanda has iterated on and refined over the decade plus that the company has been around. It's a strategy that any company would envy and one that she shares with us today. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Amanda explains how she and her team were able to use high and low touch ways to get users involved and why that engagement created a sense of buy-in that made Food52 scalable. As Amanda explains, engaged users don't just help with content generation. They also provide valuable insights into consumer trends that have helped inform Food52's latest offering, an exclusive product line that is helping further boost its revenue into the tens of millions. From tips on building a community to dropshipping products and launching a new product line, tune in to this episode to find out all of that and more. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org. Today on the show, we have Amanda Hesser, the co-founder and CEO of Food52. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. So I was just looking through the Food52 website and it's absolutely beautiful. I love everything about it, the theme, the concept, I mean, the design, really, really beautiful. Tell me a little bit about how you came upon starting it. Like what made you want want to found that? Sure. Uh, Well, my co-founder, Meryl Stubbs, and I co-founded it uh, together. And we did so because we were both journalists and editors and trained cooks. So, you know, we were professionals in the field, but we were professionals because it was a passion of ours. You know, we loved food. We love home. We love, you know, cooking and traveling and eating. And we, um, we just felt that a couple things were happening. One was just that food was really shifting from being this niche topic in our culture to something that was just much more ingrained in Americans' identities and, um, and lifestyles, frankly. And it was, you know, there was this real sea change happening in the industry and 
that was really exciting to us um, as people who cared about food. But we also felt like as a result, what we were being served with as consumers, meaning like the content that we had available to us, the products, uh, the conversation, the interaction, the community um, was, was lacking and really wasn't uh, keeping up with the evolution of its place in our culture. And we felt like there was an opportunity to serve people better, to create a very different kind of company than existed before, one that was much more 360, 360 degree. And also selfishly, we wanted this, to create this world, this hub for, um, for ourselves. We felt, uh, you know, a lot of great companies are born out of an unsatisfying consumer experience. And, um, and I think that definitely was a piece of what drove us to, to create Food 52. That's awesome. So how long has it been around? So we launched Food 52 in September of 2009. So we are 11 years old and which, you know, is, <laughs> is both, I think, like, you know, on one hand is an incredible accomplishment and is also, um, it is not a surprise to us that it, you know, has taken us sort of this amount of time to get where we are because we understood going in that when you're building a brand where you're really trying to create an emotional connection with your readers and um, your followers, that it takes time. It's not something that you can do overnight. On the other hand, you know, being a startup and being 11 years old, uh, you know, I think once you pass the, the three-year mark, you start like entering dinosaurhood. Yep. Yeah. Everyone else that you started with is gone. You're like, oh, it's just me left. <laughs> yeah. There's, there is the survival uh, feeling, which is nice, but, um, <laughs> but also that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, an industry and world that like is always looking for the next. So if you've made it beyond three years, you're no longer the, you know, news, but yep. it's actually, I think in many ways in terms of running the company, it's been so great to actually I think once we hit kind of eight years where we were really not only just more of an established company but able to um, really broaden you know what we were covering as a media company really you know ambitiously pursue our commerce business Um, the the business just became became much more interesting and and it's a complex business and so it's not something that you can like you know we started focused on content um, because we understood the power of content to build that relationship and also to really build brand identity. And that, that was to us the most important thing that we could do in the beginning. And then we methodically kind of added, layered on all the things that we do now. And I think that even if you were starting today, that is the way to do it because you couldn't, um, <laughs> A, you couldn't get funding to do all the things that we do now. Um, but also you wouldn't want to because it's sort of, it's, you really need to build that relationship and you can't just kind of full court press the consumer with like books and a site and recipes and content across cooking at home and, you know, uh, so a presence on all the social channels. Like there's a lot of stuff that we do that, you know, I think had to sort of slowly evolve. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to kind of dive into the evolution of your brand because I th- I think I recently read that you guys reach 24 million people per month. Is that yes. right? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. So I want to kind of hear like, how did you all start out? And then where are you now? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, we started by focusing on content and we started <laughs> very much in the kitchen. And then because we felt like that is the core of our premise, which is that, you know, we see food at the center of a well-lived life. We serve people who believe in that. And we felt like the kitchen and and cooking was always going to be kind of our core strength. And so when we began, you know, the vast majority of our content was focused on cooking. We did recipe um, contests and we did that because 
it was a way to um, test a, a content model that we felt like was underused online, it, which was that, you know, there was lots of user generated content, but there wasn't, it wasn't done in a way that really um, like served other readers and really celebrated the content creators. Mm -hmm. We wanted to become this platform for them. And, and what we provided was, you know, in some ways you could look at it as production services, right? People could contribute their recipes and then we would photograph them, we would test them, and then we would distribute them across a bigger platform and, you know, our platform. And that was the way that we built community and we created lots of ways for people to get involved. So it wasn't just for the people who, who were creating recipes. It was also for people who, you know, if you wanted to become a recipe tester you could do that, or if you wanted to vote on the recipe contest, we created lots of different like kind of high touch and low touch ways for people to have meaningful engagement and involvement in the curation of the content. And that was something that really hadn't been done well before. And we felt like it was a way to not only build community, but also create a scalable model and send the message that this is a community-driven company that cares a lot about high-quality content, and we can build this together. And we can take, we can start with recipes, and then we can build out from there. And what we did do was, you know, through our recipe contests, we were able to identify, like, you know, really great home cooks who, you know, maybe they had a, a blog, maybe they didn't, but they just, you know, they they didn't have a platform and that was sizable and we were able to provide that for them. And, you know, we got them to then write articles for us and some have done cookbooks for us. And, you know, many of them have gone on to do their own cookbooks. And, um, and I think that that building that sort of trust and that relationship in the early days with our community um, is what has allowed us to get to where we are now, which is, you know, a much bigger site. And, um, you know, we still have recipe contests, but, but fewer of them, but we have other ways for people to be really deeply involved in, in what we do. And so, for instance, I'll just give you kind of a smattering of, of examples. You know, we have a hotline and on, on our hotline, anyone can ask any cooking or home um, or food question and it gets answered um, by the community and answers, you know, can get voted up and down um, in a kind of stack overflow fashion. And so that's a, that's a community resource. We do, um, our own kind of like set of social contests on Instagram. That's really how we built our Instagram community and following was through um, creating a hashtag called F52 grams where we um, named themes and then people would tag us with photographs that um, relevant to that theme. And then we would repost our favorites. And so people, you know, uh, posted, tagged us, let their friends know. Um, and that's, that's how we built our following which is now at 2.8 million. We have a product line called Five Two, and we have a dropship shop where we sell, um, you know, hundreds of of products, really thousands of SKUs at this point. But um, we and those those are products that are produced by other vendors that that we dropship through our our site and our um, platform. But we wanted to create our own line of products uh, once we had gotten our sea legs in commerce, and so when we went to do that it made total sense for us to actually call on our community for their input on the products and not just in a, you know, a shallow way, but a really kind of like deep and extensive way. You know, we had the data on like what people were shopping for, what was selling well on our site, what materials, but, and our first product, just to give you uh, a specific example, you know, our first product was a cutting board. Now we already sold a lot of cutting boards. So we know what we knew, what materials sold, what price points sold, what sizes sold, well, 
Um, but we really wanted to just go to our community and say, like, what do you want? Like in your ideal cutting board, what does it look like? What is it made of? What, you know, what do you use it for? What features do you want? And we did a survey that was 11 questions, which, you know, goes against all rules of, of surveys yep. too long and more than 10,000 people answered and in great detail um, what they wanted. And so that we created a product that reflected their feedback. And that's how that has formed the DNA of that whole product line is, is using the input of our community to create better cooking and home products than um, we could have otherwise come up with ourselves. That's amazing. Such a good evolution of the business. How are you encouraging your community to fill out those surveys or want to engage? I mean, I'm sure there's like your power users who are like anything Amanda does or puts out or the brand puts out, like we're ready to help. But then for newer people, I'm sure there's a little bit more maybe convincing. So how do you strike that balance to get people to, you know, help decide on the product decisions or like what's next? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways that we do it. One is, uh, you know, as we saw that there was great interest in, in having a say in the products, we decided to create a, um, what we call the five, two design team. And it's essentially a, a communication channel for that group who wants to have all the latest news on like what products we're thinking about, what surveys are coming up, what products are launching. They get early, they get a sneak peek. They help us test those products. We'll send them prototypes. And so people can sign up for that. So that's one way that people can kind of, you know, engage at whatever level they, they're interested in. But of course, that also attracts people who tend to want to be more engaged. But then we do things like the cutting board um, survey, I think, is maybe a bit of an outlier in that it's probably our more, one of the more extensive surveys we've done. We, what we tend to do is kind of lighter touch things um, on social. So we'll um, go on Instagram and we'll ask, you know, three to five questions on an Instagram story and you can vote right there on the story. So we'll give you the choices and you can just, you know, press a button and let us know. Mm -hmm. And then we do like to make sure that we give sort of open field questions so that people who are extra passionate or who have detailed information they want to share, they have that opportunity, but they can do it on a, in a medium that's like, right in front of them. For instance, like they're on, if they're on Instagram already, we want them to be able to do it right there not have to like click over to our site and fill something out. And I think this is not just with our product line. I think this is with everything um, we do is, you know, meet people where they are and serve them well where they are. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's really the way we think about it. And, you know, we also try to frankly just make it fun. So it's not just like these survey, which we don't want our surveys to feel like we're giving a homework assignment. We want them to be, um, you know, presented in a, in a fun way and it should be entertaining, but it also should be substantive. Yep. I love that. So you're getting a bunch of data from these surveys and, you know, from the community, are there any tools or tech, or are you using AI or ML or anything to kind of sort through all this data to help make decisions, whether it's for new products or, you know, a new direction like that the community wants or anything? <laughs> I would love to say yes. <laughs> um, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have just found, um, honestly, that the, the best way to, like we've created, like for, for some of the survey answers, like our team will create pivot tables. So they can kind of group things together, but frankly, like the best ideas have come from just reading through people's answers. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten better at structuring our, our, the questions we're asking so that, you know, many of them can be answered through multiple choice and therefore you have very like straight up data. But the best product features just they do come from those open open field questions and we want to make sure that there's space for that and that we are reading through them and you know 
We also have a, a group. Um, it's kind of VIP shoppers called Club Sandwich. And, I like that name. <laughs> um, and we, we reach out to them and we ask them for feedback. And, and actually, I guess with Five Two, we do this too. And we'll, we'll, sometimes we'll just send notes to the group and we'll say, you know, to the Five Two design team, hey, you know, we'd love to you know, hear your thoughts on X, Y, and Z. Or if you have any, any product ideas, let us know. And we always say, we'll, we read every email. And it's true. We just, we do. <laughs> and um, I mean, maybe there will be a point at which we can't do that. But we're, you know, we're a pretty sizable business. We created the community because we wanted people to feel like they could connect with each other. Like food is inherently social. We wanted to create ways online that you could really feel connected to one another. But likewise, I think that it's really important for our team to feel connected to our community and to what we're doing and their thoughts on what we're doing. Um, I think when you create more of a wall, that's when you start having, you know, that's, that's when um, you can have real challenges uh, in your comment section and you can attract trolls and, you, yeah. can, you know, I mean, I think that there's, um, our presence and engagement is, I think, you know, just as important in terms of like allowing people to feel like it's not just that they're connecting with each other, but that this, this hub through which they are connecting with other people, um, has a sense of place and of people. Yep. Yeah. That's great. I think a good reminder too, about crafting survey responses in a thoughtful way. So then you can actually curate the data easily, but then also leaving long form answers. So one thing I saw was a mention of the film, Julie and Julia. And I wanted to hear about that and some opportunities that have come up while building Food 52. Sure. Well, that, that particular uh, opportunity came up based on a story I wrote in the New York Times when I worked there. It was actually the, like the sort of dawn of food blogs and this blogger, Julie, you know, wrote, wrote a very funny blog, um, which believe it or not, had no food photos because blogs didn't even have photos back then um, <laughs> about cooking, cooking every recipe and mastering the art of French cooking. And she had an amazing writing voice, very funny. So I wrote the story about her and it got a lot of attention. And then eventually Nora Ephron wrote the screenplay for Julie and Julia, where she kind of took Julie's blog, and then also juxtaposed it against this um, memoir. I guess it was like a memoir of Julia Child's time in France, mm-hmm. um, and then created the movie script out of that. And um, so, so I ended up playing the part of myself, um, interviewing Julie uh, in her Long Island City apartment, just like I did in real life. And um, and then that that sort of story coming out and having a uh, you know a big impact on her career. That's so fun. That sounds like yeah, uh, just a very fun and cool experience to have now. Yeah. 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 I sort of, I, I always joke that I had the perfect Hollywood career. Like, you know, I auditioned, which I did actually have to audition for the part for myself. Uh, and, great. um, got the part, you know, it was, you know, Meryl Streep was in the movie. The movie was a success and now I'm out. <laughs> I don't ever have to, I don't ever have to, to, uh, try again. I'm, it's like, I'm good. But yeah, it was a it was a fun like dip into a very different different world. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So to shift over into your guys' product line five two, I wanted to hear a little bit about when you knew it was the right time to launch your own products instead of um, sourcing them from other vendors. Yeah, we launched Commerce in two thousand thirteen, and we didn't launch five two until two thousand eighteen. So I would say that you know we took our time getting. Um, experience in, in the commerce space. And, and I, <laughs> I say that, um, but with a caveat, retail and e-commerce have gone through such immense changes and shifts in the past decade 
that everyone's learning all the time, even if you've been in the business forever. You know, when we started our dropship business, there were so many companies who just didn't dropship. And so there were great products out in the world that we couldn't sell because the companies were not willing to do a dropship model. They wanted only to sell um, inventory, which we understood, but we were betting on the fact that the, the, that the world would shift <laughs> and the industry would shift. And I, you know, I, our bet has paid off, but it did take time um, to really build up um, a good, assort, a strong assortment for of products in our category um, to build relationships. I think that was sort of the biggest learning for us was that uh, commerce is very much about relationships mm-hmm. and it's not just about like people wanting to sell their products, but they want to sell them through outlets that they, um, you know, get along with where, where you really are partnering with each other. Um, and so that takes time to, to evolve. And so I think, you know, the first couple of years was very much about relationship building, really understanding logistics. We built our own commerce platform. We didn't do like Magento or any of those things. We just, we build it from scratch because of the nature of our commerce business is very different. Mm-hmm. It functions differently than, than the, the sort of larger um, platforms yeah. allow for. Yeah, and, there's a lot going on there. Dropshipping, your own product, blogs, like yeah, yeah community, yeah. a ton. Yeah. So we had, you know, we just, we had our hands full with like things that we needed to like both learn, but also refine, you know, we, we built this pl- platform. It was pretty, I mean, it was, it did what it was supposed to, but, you know, for the kind of commerce business we are today, it was simplistic. So we've had to, over, over the years, really um, continue to develop the platform itself, like, in, you know, improve our checkout, improve basically kind of every aspect of it to kind of reflect the kind of business we are now. Anyway, so, so the first couple of years we knew was going to be learning. Um, and then also, you know, the other thing that we learned was like what, what people trust us for and what do they look to us for and what, what do they want to be buying us, um, from us. And I think that was, you know, when, once we felt like we had a real handle on that, then it was a matter of everyone from probably day one wanted to create our own product line. But deciding when we're ready, I think ultimately just took us saying, we're going to do it this year. <laughs> yeah, and that was 2018. You know, it was just like it was just pulling the trigger. You know, and because everyone's busy, right, in a in an organization like ours, and so it's not that people don't want to take on something new and big like this, but it's they know that if they if we do, it's like they're going to have to like reorganize all like all their work streams and really devote new time to this. And um, and so you know, it, it just it was a matter of finally just kind of biting the bullet and saying we're we're doing it, and here's our we're going to aim for a a fall launch and, um, and then working backwards from there to, to see, you know, how to make it happen. And I think similarly, like our, our growth into retail, um, will, will be a similar thing. Like, are, are you ever ready for retail? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It feels like it felt last year to us like a good time. And we started exploring it very seriously. And then COVID hit. Um, and so we just hit pause, but we're thinking about it again for next year. Obviously, post-COVID, you know, knock on wood, that it will be post-COVID, um, it may look quite different. But I think it's it's something that we are committed to pursuing and better understanding and figuring out what makes sense for us. Yeah, that makes sense. So what you were just mentioning COVID, and I want to hear a little bit about how has that shifted your business? Because, you know, a lot of people are home now. I'm sure maybe you have you know a lot more orders as well, because people are wanting to cook and try, you know, new recipes where maybe they didn't have time before. But what does that look like for you all now? What have you seen uh, behind the scenes? You know, it's been a tremendous 
uh, year for us in terms of our audience size, audience growth, and our revenue growth. You know, obviously not something that anyone would have wished. Uh, you know, that to have um, spawned that growth, but um, it is what it is. I think what we've come away from this having learned was a couple of things. One is just, it's been a real validation of what we do. You know, um, I think we in our hearts have, you know, from the very beginning understood that, you know, food and home are such uh, critical and vital parts of one's life and that they are worth investing time and thought into. And that's really what we've been pushing as a brand since day one. We were building this company knowing that there was kind of a growing understanding of that. I think COVID really just um, rapidly accelerated people's understanding, um, I think, across our, our entire culture, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I think suddenly people saw like that having a place where you feel safe and comfortable and being able to feed yourself and your family and loved ones is just um, so important. And so it was, you know, it's been great to be a company where we feel like we can serve people in a positive fashion during a time that's really stressful, you know, and I think that just we're able to see now what specifically people are interested in. You know, we were, we've been able to adapt with our product lines, for instance, you know, there's a, um, a textile company that we've worked with for many years and, the, you know, their main products, there was less demand for, but they were able to make masks. And so we, you know, we sold, we, we sold masks, we've sold, you know, tens of thousands of masks. We've, um, and not just through them, but through some other vendors who also, you know, had the capabilities to make them. There were categories that, you know, have shot up that weren't previously, you know, they were previously doing fine, but now have become really significant. For instance, hand soap, um, hand sanitizer, you know, th- things like that. And then, and then obviously our sort of traditional kitchenware, kitchen gear sales have really have like wildly increased because yes, more people are cooking and they're home and they're realizing like, oh, you know, my saute pan isn't in such good shape or I actually need a different size. And, um, and ideally we're, we're helping them out with that. So, um, but then, then I also think, you know, just from a maybe more unexpected internal team benefit that we have seen is that you know we had some people who were working remote previously mm-hmm. but you know we had offices when we have offices on 26th street in new york city and that's where sort of the vast majority of our team worked and when we had to shut down um you know we'd shut down our our photo studios our video studios our test kitchen we were really faced with a big challenge of like how, how do we how do we produce content um, without all of that support. And I think that that has really, you know, sometimes not, not having everything, you know, really inspires creativity. And, yes. and I actually think that um, what we've learned is that we can do a ton um, with very little um, and also that it, people respond to it in a different way. Like I think that a lot of the content that we, ha- you know, we're sort of known for our visual aesthetic, our photography, and the, the kind of like the sort of beauty of what we do. And that's great. I think we also pride ourselves with being um, accessible and relatable. And I think we, while we were achieving that, I think we have, we've learned from COVID that we have so much more potential if we're actually, you know, shooting in real people's homes, (laughs) not, not just in our, you know, pretty studio, but, you know, and that we're showing kind of real life. I think it makes people feel much more at ease and also um, more open to the content and feel like, like they can be a part of that. And so that's been really eye-opening and exciting because I think for, you know, having 
our content team is 30 plus people, you know, and having that many kind of creative minds um, together, I think it's been, it's been really inspiring for all of us to just think differently about what we do and, and, and what we can do. Um, yeah, I've heard of uh, quite a few brands saying the same thing of we never maybe would have tried this model before because maybe, you know, we thought the way we were doing it was what everyone expected and wanted. And it's been, you know, in some ways a good shakeup to be able to see kind of like, oh, this is actually not only just working, but it's also maybe something to keep, you know, for the long term. Yeah. And in fact, it's a, a very common comment on our Instagram TV videos is, you know, please, please don't go back to doing these videos in your office. Oh, wow. So are you guys going to stick with that? And or are you going to do a mix going forward once you can re-enter the office? The one piece of our office we have reopened is our, our photo studios. And okay. primarily for things like our product shots in our shop, mm-hmm. you know, solos, uh, in a setting. We have not gone back to doing kind of our food videos and things like that. So I want to quickly talk through um, user acquisition. So I know you've talked quite a bit about Instagram and I wanted to hear how you find new users and what platforms are working for you or what strategies um, outside of the contests and Instagram stories, like what else are you guys experimenting with and seeing success in? There's no silver bullet uh, and that's good. (laughs) Um, You know, I remember the early days when everyone was just like relying so heavily on Facebook to, to grow their traffic. And Um, that was when, you know, social sites were really fine with referring back to sites. Um, and I, I remember that we were uncomfortable with that. It felt sort of too easy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing that I, I think, um, you know, people who've been in content for a while, like it's just, it's never easy and that's okay. Um, and that's what makes it interesting, right? Because you have to constantly be nimble and experiment and keep um, evolving. And so I think that's, that's been really key is that like not getting too wedded to any one thing that's working and seeing it as not just like that, that's not a lack of of efficiency. It's actually an opportunity to make sure that you're like reaching people across lots of different channels. So there are a couple of different ways we do it. One is like sort of channel specific, right? We, this year we, uh, we launched TikTok. We're still just early days there um, starting to experiment you know, we got into reels, we really expanded our IGTV, we're, we're starting to um, really invest more time in understanding uh, where, like, where we should, how we can add value to Pinterest, right? Um, And create an experience that is, that people will be interested in. So I I think that, like, constantly sort of making sure that you're experimenting, um, trying new things, and then, and then adjusting across different channels. Um, we just launched a podcast this week. Oh, nice. We had Congrats. a podcast What's for it called? many years. Oh, thank you. It's, um, so it's called um, The Genius Recipe Tapes. And it's based on Genius Recipes, which is our most popular column. And um, it's these are recipes that, you know, it might be a recipe for something like um, meatloaf, <laughs> but it's there's something about that meatloaf recipe that, um, has a particular technique or an unexpected ingredient that really changes the way you cook meatloaf forever. And so it's, it's these recipes that really are standouts and a celebration of the people who have come, who have come up with them. And so the genius recipe tapes is grew out of the videos that we do where Kristen are, who writes genius recipes, she invites the creator of the recipe onto the video to talk about like how they came up with it and just talk about like, 
their life in cooking. And, um, and we, there was so much good material that we realized that we could um, create a podcast out of it. So that's our first podcast. We have one called Burnt Toast, which is on hiatus right now. But um, this is the first in a push toward uh, building a podcast network. So channels, like kind of expanding across channels is, is one um, way. But, you know, the other is expanding across the landscape of contributors who we work with and just really broadening it so that we are working with people, like lots of different voices, lots of different perspectives, and also lots of different expertise so that we can like go deeper on topics like bread or spirits. But we also can, you know, bring people who just have a really, you know, sort of unique perspective on cooking or home and who can, who have their own followings and who we can kind of bring, fold into our world a bit and, um, and broaden our audience by reaching theirs and vice versa, help them build their own following by having them be on our platform. Yep. So I want to hear a little bit about your podcast strategy. Of course, that's top of mind for us. I mean, we have a lot of brands coming to us asking to help them build a podcast or think through that. And I'd love for, to hear your idea around like, what does success look like when you're thinking about building out these podcasts and what should maybe other, you know, e-commerce uh, leaders think about when they're thinking, oh, I want to build a podcast for my brand. Like, how are you guys approaching that? Well, the way we approached it was we looked at the landscape of what kinds of, you know, podcasts were in our space. Um, and obviously, you know, we had some sense of that based on our, the, you know, our existing podcast and feeling like there were like either unexplored topics or voices that weren't kind of getting out there or even just concepts. And that previously we had, you know, this one podcast and we were kind of reliant on it to kind of um, do everything, so to speak, in our, uh, in our podcast footprint. And I think that what we realized was that in topics like cooking and home, there's a lot to cover and there are a lot of specialized interests. And we felt like if we could create a suite of shows um, and we could create some in-house, but we could also, again, like act as the, this sort of platform for creators by um, partnering with them to create shows that they would like to do, but um, wouldn't have maybe the full resources to do themselves, mm -hmm. then we could build on this idea of like of a suite of podcasts that are around related topics. Um, and then, you know, do a lot of cross promotion between them um, and then ideally monetize them um, collectively, as opposed to trying to just build up one show. Mm -hmm. I love that. Cool. So we don't have much time left and I want to hop into a lightning round, which is where I oh. ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Okay. All right. So lightning round <laughs> brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. I'm going to throw a question your way. Be ready. I'm actually starting with three different ones this time that I haven't asked before, but I think uh, it'll be interesting to hear your answers to this. So these three okay. questions are going to be called lessons learned or hiccups. and it's the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask this question of something that you learned or wouldn't do again or would tell a new founder like, oh, make sure you avoid this when starting this. So the first lesson learned is around drop shipping. What's a good lesson there or what's a hiccup you made early on where you're like, make sure you don't repeat this. We launched in August and for November, we decided to sell fresh, like frozen turkeys, um, heritage turkeys. Uh -huh. So in other words, like, like a fresh ingredient, you know, that can spoil, yep. um, if not, if not shipped properly, um, in an efficient fashion. And, um, we sold 80 turkeys that year, which we felt like was a pretty big amount given that we had just launched. Yeah. 
and 79 of them got to their the homes like on time happily everyone was had their thanksgiving ready to go um, but you don't want to not get somebody's turkey to them for thank- for Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so that one person, one person's turkey took five of us to track down and then replace and then send a um, apology um, gift basket. Um, it and took us two days. And so the person got their turkey for Thanksgiving, but we came away knowing that we were not ready um, from a, certainly from a supply chain logistics perspective to be handling fresh foods. So we stuck to our dry goods. Oh my gosh. That's a great story. I can imagine that being, I mean, the customer might not like this, but having a good social story about that of like, where in the world is Sharon's turkey? <laughs> like try to figure out where it went. Well, there's a UPS truck broken down on the side of the road in Florida. And I guess another truck came up and was like all the packages were were um, shipped over, but the turkey did not make it oh, no. um, for, in the transfer. Uh-huh. And so we, somewhere somewhere in Florida was that turkey um, and pretty close to its final destination, but it just never made it there. Um, anyway, but we learned all sorts about, uh, about sourcing turkeys, um, finding delivery companies in Florida and it all, you know, it was a race and every little triumph of like figuring out one piece of the logistics was, um, was, was fun, but it was not the most relaxing Thanksgiving for us. Oh my gosh. Well, that's a pretty good lesson when it comes to drop shipping. One, be careful if you're around holidays. I like that because the customer might actually get upset. And then, yeah, the perishable thing is tricky. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> all right. Next, the next lesson learned is around creating a new product line. What would you advise people against trying or any hiccups you had early on with that? I think the hiccup we've had with new products that we've developed is not building production delays into our timelines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to estimate, right? Um, but I think when you're, when you're new and trying to get a uh, product line launched, those launch dates have such importance. If you can't stick to them, yeah, it just, it causes a lot of... <laughs> Um, high blood pressure. I think that like mapping out realistically and not, and making sure that you're building in as many buffers as possible is best. What, one of the things that we did to kind of get around this was what we did was pre-sales. Like if, if some, sometimes if a product was not going to be able to be released on the date that we thought we would do a pre-sale for it, being clear about when the actual delivery date was, but it allowed us to kind of soft launch a product and let our community know about it without having a long delay between product launches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good answer. All right. Easier questions up next. What is a favorite recipe you're trying out right now? So Joanne Chang, who has flower bakery in Boston, is known for her egg sandwich. Yeah. And she bakes the eggs in a water bath. and it's, they're just so light and fluffy. And I, they're one of the most popular, it's a really popular recipe on our site. And I haven't, I've eaten them, but I haven't made them. So I'm excited to, I'm going to follow, I'm going to just follow her recipe um, sometime this weekend. And I like the idea of not having to like fry an egg last minute before, you know, making an egg sandwich. Like I like the idea of it sort of getting cooked in this very sort of slow controlled environment um, so that you can you can have a great breakfast sandwich without like adding stress to your morning. Yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. I've never heard of baking an egg in a water bath before. 
I've heard of poached yeah. eggs, but never baking it. So I will have to also find that recipe. We need to get the link to that so we can, uh, our listeners okay. can try it out as well. Great. All right. And the last question, slightly harder. What one thing will okay. have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? It's what we're seeing now. COVID has just accelerated this this industry shift that, you know, where larger, more traditional retail companies were being squeezed by e-commerce and, um, and the retail landscape was shifting. You know, obviously we've seen a lot of bankruptcies since um, COVID hit. I think that that, um, so it kind of sped up the process a bit. And I think that e-commerce, you know, has, has most e-commerce companies have really benefited from, you know, people being home more and people not wanting to go out to stores that, mindset of ordering online, while obviously it was well underway before COVID, I think is going to be kind of more uh, firmly part of the way people shop than maybe they had previously. So I do think e-commerce is is poised to have a great benefit. And I think for companies like ours, the big challenge is like you've had, we've had this influx of new customers is, okay, now how do you keep them? And how do you, um, you know, keep serving them well? beyond this um, extraordinary and, you know, unusual time. Yep. Yeah. That's a great answer. Well, Amanda, this has been such a fun interview. I'm a little bit hungry now after hearing about that baked egg, but where can people (laughs) find out more about you and Food52? Oh, well on food52.com and on our social channels, which are at Food52 and Home52. And we also have a bunch of cookbooks. I, I hope you will check us out. Cool. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.